Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's Sermon Podcast. As we approach God's Word, let's take a prayerful breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Listen to God's Word this day. Please join me in our prayer for illumination. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. We turn to God's word this morning, first from the book of Exodus, reading from the third chapter, verses one through 15. Let us listen to God's word together. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jesuits. The, crown, the cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, 
the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. And from the Gospel of Matthew, reading from the sixth chapter, verse nine. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After the sermon last week, they began our series on the Lord's Prayer. I heard from two folks who actually knew the very name of God, or at least they've been told that by their two young children. The first was convinced, the first child, was convinced that God's name is Kevin. After all, didn't his parents pray out loud every week, our Father who art Kevin? The other was equally convinced that the child's, or that God's name was Harold, because he heard every week, Harold be thy name. That was a trick question from Taylor. What indeed are we saying when we pray, hallowed be thy name? Before we get to that, let us pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. May they take root in our hearts and in our lives. We pray in your name, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we said last week, Jesus did not just give his disciples a prayer and as precious as a gift that is, that, that is. But he also gave us a model for prayer. And when you look at this prayer as a model, you can't help but notice one thing. It begins with God. There's six petitions in the prayer, and three of them relate to our needs and our concerns. Our bread, our debts, our forgiveness we pray about. But the first three all are for God, thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. When you pray, in other words, begin with God, Jesus says. When we begin our prayers with God, when we begin with praise and thanksgiving, we're reminding ourselves to stop and to pay attention to God. We're reminded to let the daily treadmill of life be disrupted by the presence of the holy. When we begin with praise and thanksgiving, rather than with our needs and concerns, we're reminded about how much we've already been given by God. And that can give us some consolation, some assurance about the trials we're facing now 
As God got us through those things in the past, so God can be trusted to get us through those things in the future. When we begin our prayers with praise and thanksgiving before we follow up on Jesus' marvelous invitation to ask and receive, then we can start by asking and seeking and knocking for God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Before we start praying for what we want and will, we're reminded of the need to align our wants and will with God's will. We don't praise and give thanks to God to, to flatter or curry favor with God. It's not a technique to pave the way so that God will then give us what we want. Let us be clear, God doesn't need our prayers of praise and thanksgiving. We praise and give thanks to God because God deserves it and because we need to do it for our own mental and spiritual health. Why is it that we almost always feel better when we take a walk outside along a lake or at the beach or we encounter the beauty of a musical piece or a summer garden or we take the time to greet the sunrise or witness a sunset, at least when it's not raining? Aren't we being reminded of the wonder and beauty of God's creation, the way that God wants things to be? And doesn't that help us look at everything at least a little bit differently? Indeed, beginning our prayers with praise and thanksgiving to God helps us avoid that tunnel vision that leaves us able to focus only on our problems and only to see them as so big that they may seem insurmountable. Indeed, when we first look to God, we're reminded of what God has already done, not just in our life, but in the life of the world through Jesus Christ. And like the VeggieTales children's song, we're reminded that God is bigger than the boogeyman and the monsters on TV. Like the words of the hymn, we're reminded that this is my Father's world, and though the wrong off seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. I remember when Carrie and I were able to take the, our girls to England and Scotland when they were pretty young. When we got to London, we decided to, at least two of us, my oldest daughter, Kate, and myself, decided to climb to the top of St. Paul's Dome. Carrie and our middle daughter, Molly, decided to remain on the floor because there was a choral rehearsal and they just didn't need to climb. Our youngest daughter, Elizabeth, then about seven, decided, much to everyone's surprise, until we thought about it, that she was going to join us. As the youngest, perhaps you know a few younger ones like this, she was always trying to keep up with her older sisters. We tried to talk her out of it, but she was determined, and she is one stubborn person to this day, so we took her up. It went great. We were going up, but in the last stretch, you go across a graded walkway, steel grate with holes where you can look down and see the floor far, far below. And all of a sudden, she froze. Couldn't really go back. Had to go forward the way things worked. And so I just told her, look at me. Took her hand. And we went. She was okay. We made it all the way down. When we pray, Jesus tells us, begin by keeping our eyes on God rather than looking down at all the problems we face or our world face that weighs us down. We begin with God, 
when we pray, and we begin by hallowing God's name. What do we mean by the name of God, and what do we mean about hallowing that name? In Exodus 3, Moses asked for the name of God in the passage that Betty Jo just read. You may remember the backstory, but just in case you don't, at the time the Israelite slaves were being cruelly treated by the Egyptian pharaoh. Moses was a Jew, but he had escaped that cruelty because as an infant he had been given away and taken in by the pharaoh's household, raised as one of the household, and they didn't know that he was a Jew. As an adult, therefore, he enjoyed a privileged life. But all the other Jews, the other fellow Israelites, didn't trust him. They knew his true identity. But then as an adult, he had come to the defense of another Israelite and killed an Egyptian soldier who was about to kill the Israelite. So as a result, he had to flee far away to Midian, flee with really no hopes of ever coming back. He married and settled. And so it is, as Exodus 3 begins, that he is tending his father-in-law's flock. And as he does so, he stops and turns aside because he sees a bush which is burning without being consumed. And then he hears a voice, God's voice, calling his name. God tells Moses to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground in the presence of God. Moses does, and then God tells Moses that God wants him to go back to Egypt and to lead his people out of Egypt, to escape the authorities, in other words. And for a lot of reasons, as you might imagine, Moses is not exactly excited to take this assignment on. One of the reasons is he knows the Israelites are going to be skeptical about anything he says, much less about following him on what would seem to be an impossible journey. And so he asked God for God's name, that he might be able to use that, I guess, as a reference um, when he gets back to the Israelites. I've always felt like he asked God to do this because he knows God won't do it, and therefore he has a good reason to turn the assignment down. But as so often the case, God surprises Moses and says to him, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am who I am. It's a verb, first person, the verb to be, and Hebrew verbs are very flexible. So it can not only mean I am who I am, but it can also mean I will be who I will be. What Exodus 3 is telling us is that God has a name. God is not just some impersonal force. God is someone. But neither is God someone that we can easily categorize, much less control. God is mysterious. God is big. I am who I am. God is awesome. God is free. I will be who I will be. In other words, God is holy. God has a name, a holy name, and we are called to hallow it, to treat it as holy. When we think of that, of what it might mean to hallow God's name, we often think about the commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain. And to be sure, when you do that, you're not exactly hallowing God's name. And think about it. We wouldn't use profanity as the proper name for a loved one, a child or a spouse or a friend, would we? So why should we do it for God? But hallowing God's name means a lot more than that. 
It's important to know what Jesus and the rest of the Bible mean when they use that word holy. For many modern people, many of us probably, we have negative connotations. I mean, we talk about holy rollers or someone who's always holier than thou. thou. But that's not what the Bible means. For the Bible, the word holy means set apart. To say that God is holy is to say that God's ways are not our ways. That God is good in a way that we're not, in a way that we can hardly imagine. The goodness of us humans is like, at best, a flickering candle compared to the bright light of the sun, the goodness of God. God is holy. But that doesn't mean set apart in the sense of being remote or aloof or far off. No, the holy God we worship and pray to is also a loving God, a God who is always coming to us, whether in a burning bush in Midian or in a manger in a stable in Bethlehem. To hallow God's name, to treat God as holy then, is to come before God with reverence and awe. As the theologian Rudolf Otto wrote a century ago in a very famous book, There's always a push in two directions when it comes to God's holiness. On the one hand, God is so dazzling, so wondrous, so mysterious, so good that there's a push away. We don't feel worthy like Moses. We lean back. But on the other hand, there is this fascination, the sense of awe at God's love, and that causes us to lean forward. God is holy, and if we're being realistic, there will always be that twofold push up and back, as is the case for Moses here. Keeping God's name holy, hallowing God's name, is to reject anything that is not God. To hallow God's name is to turn away from all other idols, whatever they may be, money or status or achievement or success or whatever, or even those things which are great to love, but aren't to take the place of God, like even family or country. No other name deserves our ultimate trust, as Alwyn has written, our all or our final obedience. As we said, hallowing God's name means that we don't throw it around as an epithet. But there are far worse ways to blaspheme God and fail to keep God's name holy. The German soldiers who went into battle in World War I had on their trust, I mean on their helmets, God with us. And that was blaspheming the holy name of God. The issue was not that they were German. The issue would have been just as bad as if they had been American helmets. The issue was that they sought to attach God's blessing to the course of action that they had chosen to take. As a theologian wrote in a commentary on the Lord's Prayer, we fail to hallow God's name anytime we try to put a leash on God, dragging God into endorsing our causes, our crusades. Holy. It's not just how we describe who God is, God's being. Holy also describes God's actions. Because God not only talks the talk, God walks the walk. To hallow God's name, therefore, is to do what God does and what God wants, to love others as God does, to seek justice as God does. 
In the so-called holiness code of Leviticus, instructions are given about objects to be kept sacred like the Ark of the Covenant, but instructions are also given about how to treat other people. God instructs in the holiness code the Israelites to care for the poor, to care for sojourners, that is, immigrants and refugees, to care for hired servants, the deaf, the blind, the aged, all who are struggling or living on the margins. They're to do that, God says in Leviticus, because Israel is to be holy as God is holy. Hallowing God's name is doing what God does, what God would do. A few weeks back, Carrie and I were at Chautauqua for my study leave, and while there, we got to hear Bishop Luttrell Easterling of the United Methodist Church preach in daily worship. One Sunday, she shared the story of a woman she knew. The woman was an African-American woman, an older woman in her 70s or 80s, small in size. One day, she was out under a tree in a very remote section there in Alabama to gather dirt. She was gathering that dirt because it was a site where an African-American man had been lynched years ago. And she was planning to take that dirt to the new, at that time yet to be built, now open, National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, because that center was memorializing all those who lost their lives to lynching. And they've documented 4,400 between 1877 and 1950. In any case, she's on the ground, no one around, a road that almost no one's traveling down, digging. And then a white man in a very big truck drove up and stopped. He just watched her for a while, and then he got out of the truck and walked towards her. He was far younger and certainly far bigger, and she was terrified. No one was around. And then he asked her, what are you doing? She wanted to just say that she was digging some dirt to take back to her garden, but she said something came over and she just felt she had to be truthful. A man was lynched here in 1937, and I'm going to honor him, she said to him. The white man paused for a moment, and then he asked, excuse me, ma'am, would it be okay if I helped you? She looked at him for a moment, and she nodded her head, and she turned over her trowel to him, because she was pretty tired and pretty hot, and he kept digging. But as he did, tears started to fall down, come down his face, and she asked him, are you okay, sir? No, ma'am, he replied. I'm just so scared my grandfather was here and participated in it. And then he began sobbing. When they had enough dirt and were standing to go, up to go, the man, having gained his composure, asked the woman where she was going to take it. And then she asked, can I accompany you there? Yes, she said. So she got in her little car, he got in his big truck, and they went to Montgomery, to the site of the memorial. They walked in together, carrying that dirt, so they could be turned over and used in the memorial. Remembering a horrific injustice, acknowledging a past sin and repenting, letting go of hatred, seeking a new path forward, bravely doing a hard but the right thing. Is there any doubt 
that they were doing holy work? Is there any doubt that God was there? Is there any doubt that they were standing on holy ground? Hallowed be thy name, Jesus says. Pray this way. Live this way. Amen. Thank you for listening to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll join us for worship on Sunday morning. For more information about our congregation and our ministries, please contact the church office. Now go in peace.